Well, let's turn our eyes now to the Scriptures, the, the Word of God, the message that God has revealed to us to know Him and walk with Him as we find our way to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, we're going to hit the enter key a couple of times here and start a new paragraph as uh, we finish off, Lord willing, uh, this section of Philippians today. Um, I'll tell you right now, this is a, this is a portion of Philippians that um, I suppose there's, there's two dangers to a section like this in the Scriptures. Uh, one danger is to gloss over these verses and assume that they're just verses related to personal correspondence and, you know, greet so-and-so and uh, things of a personal nature that really don't transcend anything beyond a personal communication between Paul and uh, a couple of people here. Um, and there's nothing for us because of the verses that we're about to read, verses 19 to 30, are part of the inspired canon. They, they are just as much God-breathed as the Ten Commandments or as the Sermon on the Mount or, you know, pick your favorite text in Scripture. Uh, so we don't want to gloss over these and assume that they have nothing to say to us, nothing other than, a, a, that's good to know, Paul, I'm, I'm glad you're talking to the guys there. The other thing we don't want to do is try to read too much into these verses, and, and this is more of a, of a preacher uh, temptation, if I can say it like that, that uh, we so want to glean insight out of verses that sometimes we, we squeeze them beyond what's actually there. And uh, so we want to avoid both of those tendencies today. And I uh, come to this section. It's sort of a, a personal uh, section. It concludes uh, this part of Paul's letter. And um, so let's, uh, let's look at what it says, and then we'll try to glean some truths that really are there for us to see. Uh, Follow along with me, please, as I read, starting in verse 19 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul writes, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will continually be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me for the furtherance of the gospel, like a child serving his father. And therefore, I hope to send him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord, that I myself also shall be coming shortly. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Well, there's a lot we can talk about there, but let's uh, go ahead and jump in. And uh, I want to introduce this section uh, by calling it... Dave is the... Where'd Dave go? That's okay. Talk amongst yourselves. 
No, the receiver's not in on the thing here, so. Okay. Okay, I got the magic stick in. Hey, look at that. Wow, that was like wind. Okay, so let's introduce, I want to introduce this section to you by thinking of it in terms of two examples, and, and you'll see uh, what I mean here in a moment. But let's, let's talk about the two men that Paul uh, uh, speaks about in this section, okay? Uh, first of all, we have this guy named Timothy, and, and you guys are probably uh, somewhat, in one way or another, familiar with Timothy. He was, first of all, a native of Lystra. And uh, in case your uh, ancient Near Eastern geography is a bit lacking on a Sunday morning when it feels like we could hang meat in here this morning, um, you remember that that is in uh, south-central Turkey, if that helps you, what is modern-day uh, south-central part of Turkey, what was known as Asia Minor in the scriptural times. Uh, that's where Timothy was from. And, and do you remember um, what was unique about his parents? Do you remember? Okay, yeah, a number of you got it. Yeah, his father was a Gentile. He was not Jewish. And uh, his mother was a Jewish woman. And you'll remember in Second uh, Timothy, uh, Paul talks about how Timothy knew the sacred writings from childhood because there, there were two people in his life that influenced him to, to eventually know and trust Christ as his Lord and Savior as the scriptures were uh, revealed to him. And who, who were those two people? Do you remember? Lois and Eunice, who were who? His mother and his grandmother. And, uh, and I, know, I know some of you grew up in homes where it was your mom or perhaps your grandmother that was the, uh, the spiritual giant in your family. And, and maybe your father was not a believer. Maybe he was um, a new Christian or, or weak in some way. Um, but we see here in Timothy's life, and I know it's the testimony of some of you also, uh, the influence that a mom and even a grandmother can make. Uh, this, this guy ends up as an elder at the, at the church at Ephesus. Um, so uh, we can be thankful for that and, and see that in, in Timothy's life. Uh, secondly, he was converted under Paul's ministry. In fact, um, if you want to just very briefly hold your place there in Philippians just to remind yourself of this, turn back to Acts chapter 16. Any of you, are any of you doing the, uh, the New Testament Bible reading plan that Terry put together? Okay, you're using that? Um, one of the things that Terry did that I appreciate about that plan is he sort of put it in chronological order. Do you, know, you notice that, those of you that are using the, the plan? And uh, so when you read the epistles, when you read the, the letters of the New Testament, a lot of them you have, to, you have to run back and read a little bit in Acts, right? And then you run back and you read the epistle, and then you run back and you read the Acts, because Acts is, is setting forth the history of which some of those letters fit at various sections in the book of Acts. So that's kind of what we're doing here. We're flipping back to the book of Acts to look at where um, uh, Timothy was was converted here for the first time. Uh, look at the Acts chapter 16, verse 1. And uh, he, and that's Paul, uh, came also to Derbe and uh, to Lystra. And those were in the same area there. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. 
And Paul wanted this man to go with him. And so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And uh, while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering the decrees which had been decided upon by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem for them to observe. And so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So when Paul shows up in uh, this part of the world in uh, Lystra and Derby, um, Timothy had come to know the Lord uh, sometime uh, in that. Paul had previously visited this city early on, and so perhaps that was the occasion uh, where he first heard the gospel message itself for the first time. Uh, but then we see how Paul arrives. He, he meets this young man. We know him uh, to be a number of years younger than Paul. And uh, so Paul takes him and he says, I'm so impressed by this, this young disciple that he says, I want you to come with me and I want you to be a co-laborer in the gospel with me. So he takes him on. And, and as you know, as you track through the book of Acts and later on into the letters, uh, Timothy was with Paul on a lot of occasions, wasn't he? We'll talk about this in a minute, but Paul always had somebody with him. And uh, we'll talk about how I think that is instructive for us today here in a minute. But So just going back to Timothy, he was converted under Paul's ministry. Uh, we see that in 2 Timothy 3, Acts 16.1. And then he became a co-laborer for the gospel. We just read that. Uh, you can turn back to Philippians chapter 2 now if you want to. Um, Paul was so impressed, he asked him to become a co-laborer for the gospel, which he did. And then he accompanies Paul on many of his missionary journeys following that. Eventually, um, we'll talk about this in a minute, but eventually Paul um, asked him to go to Ephesus and take over the work there in Ephesus because of the uh, problems that they were having. Okay, just a little bit about Timothy. That's not all that can be said, but just to kind of bring all of us up to speed on uh, who this man is and, and what he was doing. Let's talk about the guy that we may not know as much about. Oh, there it is. I'm sorry. Eventually became the resident pastor elder at Ephesus. The guy that we don't know as much about is Epaphroditus. And really, um, the only place he's mentioned in the whole New Testament is right here in the book of Philippians. Once right here in chapter 2 and a second time in chapter 4. So let's uh, learn what we can about Epaphroditus. Okay? First of all, um, he was a co-laborer with Paul at Rome. Look at uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 25 again. It says, but, but I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother. Listen, actually, look at the descriptions of this guy. I mean, if, okay, if, if your spiritual hero, whoever that is, was introducing you to somebody, wouldn't you like to be introduced like this? Listen to this. He's my brother. He's my fellow worker. He's a fellow soldier. He is your messenger. And he is a minister of my needs. Wow, what a description, right? But that little last phrase there, he's a minister to my need. Paul's in prison at Rome, he's under house arrest, and this man, Epaphroditus, is one of the guys who's coming and assisting him and helping him and ministering to him as Paul had needs, as he had uh, duties that uh, came to uh, that he needed uh, people to do. As we see here, if he had letters that needed to be delivered to people, Epaphroditus was involved as the messenger. Um, in fact, uh, he was acquainted as well with the Philippians. We see that in the next verse because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So the Philippians knew Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus knew the Philippians. And we'll see in chapter 4 here in a minute uh, how they knew each other. Number three, uh, he was the deliverer of a financial gift from the Philippians to Paul. Just flip over to chapter 4 for a minute as Paul is concluding his letter here. 
he says in verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. In fact, uh, just just back up a, a few uh, verses to verse um, 15. He says, And you yourselves know also, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, that no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Uh, some of you here um, have been involved in the missionary work of maybe some of our own missionaries or maybe people that you've known personally, and you've known and supported those missionaries from the first day. I, I bet that's true if we were to go around the room, uh, that that's true. And as Paul first set out uh, to preaching the gospel in Macedonia, who was right with him there supporting him from the very beginning? Who was it? What's that? The, which church? The Philippians, yeah. These guys have been walking with Paul for a long time. In fact, he mentions there, there were a couple of occasions where this little Philippian church was giving financially to Paul's missionary work and there was nobody else supporting the church. So uh, this missionary work, this relationship between Paul and the, and the Philippians goes back uh, to the beginning of Paul's ministry. And who has been the one who has supplied some of that need? Well, verse 18 tells us, Epaphroditus has been the one to deliver the gift from the Philippians to Paul. So that's how Paul, excuse me, that's how the Epaphroditus and the Philippians know each other because Epaphroditus likely, this is speculation, but he likely was from Philippi and was converted there and came to know the Lord. And so he's a Philippian himself is what the view of a lot of commentators is. So he delivers a financial gift from the Philippians to Paul. And uh, this is interesting. Look back at chapter 2, verse 26, just to kind of get our minds on what's going on here. It says, He was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So, so somewhere along the way, you can picture this. Here's Epaphroditus. He's over in Philippi. Paul goes to jail. And Epaphroditus is going to take this financial gift to support Paul, to support his work. And he takes it all the way across uh, from, you know, basically uh, uh, the south area of Greece and, and that area. And he goes uh, either by boat around the water or perhaps he took the land route, and, and he's on his way to Rome. Now, somewhere along the way, he gets sick, and he gets deathly sick here because the text tells us that he was to the point of death in his sickness. So he arrives at Philippi, or perhaps he had to recover somewhere else. He eventually recovers. God is gracious to him. He delivers the gift. Um, but somewhere along the way, the Philippians say got, got word that he was sick. And so they were very concerned for his health, and this is a dear friend, a dear brother in the faith. And so one of the reasons that Epaphroditus wants to go back to Philippi is, is to say, hey, I'm better, I'm here, and everybody wants to see each other again. Um, so he was uh, sick, almost died in his ministerial work. And um, you're saying Paul's in prison, right? He's in prison, so how did this letter get from Rome to the Philippians? The answer is Epaphroditus probably delivered it. When it says there at the end of verse 25, he was also your messenger, what that probably indicates is that he was the one to hand 
deliver Paul's letter to the Philippians to the Philippian church itself. Uh, there. It's also possible that he delivered some of the other prison epistles, like Philippians or Colossians or something uh, like that. But uh, in terms of Philippians, he was most likely the guy uh, to deliver the message there. Okay? So a little bit on the, on the two men that we're talking about here. Okay? So let's, uh, let's come back here. Now let's ask, why, are, why does Paul talk about these guys here? Well, where have we been? Look back at the, at the beginning of chapter 2. What did he say at the beginning of chapter 2? If there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, then make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And he goes on to talk about selfishness and giving. He goes on to talk about humility and following Christ. He talks about sanctification. He talks about not grumbling. Remember all those texts? And then he shifts gears and he says, um, I want to send you two men that embody and exemplify everything that I've just written to you. So part of Paul's design in bringing up Epaphroditus and bringing up Timothy in the flow of the letter is that these two men are going to serve in part as examples of the many character qualities that Paul has been teaching the Philippians. Okay, we'll come back to the significance of that in a minute, but that's why he brings them up. He, he's bringing these two guys up to say these are the type of men that are living the types of things that we've been talking about in chapter 2. So what does he say specifically? Timothy was sent so that Paul could hear firsthand about the condition of the Philippian church. Look back at verse 19 again. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So Paul's in prison. He couldn't just slap him a text message and say, how's it going, Philippians? How, you know, he couldn't do that. And Paul, like many, you know, you know the difference. You can talk to a relative on the phone. You can send them an email today. You can send them a text. You can check their Facebook post. You can do all those things today. But there is nothing like a personal visit by somebody that you know to be reliable. Well, Paul wants to go himself, but he's in prison, so he can't do that right now. So what does he do? He picks the number one guy he can think of, the one who is the most like-minded, the one who will care for them the best, and that's Timothy. He says, I want Timothy to go, because Paul says, because I want to know firsthand how you're doing, Philippians. Because Paul could not think of anyone else who would better minister to the Philippians in his absence. I want to direct your attention back to this this verse. Look at verse 20. For I have no one else of a kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Um, Does anybody have a different translation, that little phrase, kindred spirit? What does your Bible say if it's something different? Chris? Like-minded, okay. Someone else have a similar? Ruby? Okay, someone who cares about your welfare, okay. Someone else? Kindred spirit is, is the one that you hear the most in your version? What's that? Genuine. A genuine interest, okay. Do you know what that little word actually means? It's one word in Greek. It gets translated in two words in the New American Standard Bible. But it, it literally means of the same soul. It's isosuke. Suke, uh, you may know, is the word for soul. It's where we get psychology, the study of the soul. Isosuke, similar soul, one soul. 
And, and Paul isn't just saying, you know, we happen to agree theologically. That's not what he's saying. I mean, although that's certainly true. He's not just saying, you know, this is a friend of mine. He's saying, when I think in the deepest recesses of who I am, there is one man who comes to mind that I know shares the same passions, who shares the same theology, who shares the same concerns, who shares the same uh, manner of doing ministry. I know I can call on Timothy to go in my place and he will serve comparably to if I went myself. And that's Timothy. He's a kindred spirit. That's why he wanted to send him. Epaphroditus, on the other hand, was sent, first of all, as a messenger to deliver Paul's letter. We talked about that. Secondly, because he was longing to go following his recovery from illness. This is a good friend of theirs. They thought he was on the brink of death, and naturally they want to see him. Um, I um, uh, didn't get a chance to see him, but but one of my uh, dear friends and, and mentors is a man named Stuart Scott, who many of you know the name. Uh, uh, if you know anything about biblical counseling, if you've read his book on the exemplary husband and... Um, about a month ago, he had a heart attack. Just, and he's a young man. He's in maybe his early 50s, I would think. And um, open heart surgery. And uh, this last weekend, um, I got to talk to him on the phone. And, and the first thing I said is, what? It's so good to hear your voice. Right? That's what you would say. And, and you've been in that situation before with family or friends. And, and you, you, can, you can relate to what Epaphroditus is saying. I mean, he's, he's almost died, and now the Philippians are like, we want to see you. And he wants to see them. Three, to encourage the Philippians, and so Paul could be less concerned. This is interesting. We have some pastoral anxiety going on here. Uh, where's, Terry's not in here. Something that we pastors never deal with. Pastoral anxiety. Look at verse 28. He says, Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. So it's kind of like, I've got my two main guys there. I've got Paphroditus is there. I've got Timothy there. And Paul's like, ah, I can rest for a little bit. Because I know the Philippians are being well cared for. And when I use the term pastoral anxiety, I don't, most anxiety is sinful. Uh, the, the word actually means a strong concern. And I take that in a very godly way, that there was, there was a responsibility that Paul felt for the well-being of the Philippians. And, and you guys know what I'm talking about. Some of you serve in Awana. Uh, some of you minister in women's studies or men's studies. You have people that you're ministering to at the office or a, a guy or a gal that you get together with at Starbucks or at the restaurant and you talk. Uh, we, we meet on Friday morning with the guys and we talk and, and we minister. And, and th- there is an appropriate sense of spiritual responsibility that comes with all these different types of ministry. We don't we don't have a lone ranger picture of the church where we just you know it's it's me myself and I and we just all go and no no we are responsible for one another in one way or another in spiritual things. Uh, some of us that serve as pastors or elders or deacons there there's a a certain measure of responsibility. You may teach children or minister to friends or family members. You may be raising children in your home. All of those have levels of spiritual responsibility. We were talking about James and Glenda, how how they were caring for his mom, honoring his mom. That that's uh, some spiritual responsibility because the Bible says honor your father and mother, right? 
So at some level or another, we all share spiritual responsibility for the well-being of one another. And Paul here, part of what motivates him to send these men is he says, just because I'm in prison doesn't relieve me of that responsibility. So he picks the two best guys he can think of, and he sends them there knowing that they will be cared for in his absence. Okay, so what do we learn from all of this? And this is where, you know, we don't want to squeeze the text so hard that we're, we're gleaning things from this text that God did not intend for us to glean. And we can certainly do that. Uh, we want to avoid that today. The other thing we want to do is, is, is to avoid is just walk away and say, well, this is just Paul, him and the Philippians, he's sending Timothy, great, we can't learn anything about that. I, I think there are at least three things that we can learn um, that are intrinsic in the text, uh, really not the main points of the section, Uh, but I think are helpful for us to learn. Uh, Number one, we need relationships with people who exemplify Christ, not just good teaching and instruction. We need relationships with people who exemplify Christ, not just good teaching and instruction. What is motivating... Okay, back back up for a second. Uh, Paul is an apostle. He's writing an inspired, inerrant, God-breathed letter to the Philippians. Okay, this isn't just, you know, hey, how's it going? I mean, this is a God-breathed letter, right? Is this good instruction? (laughs) You better believe it's good instruction, right? Have you ever gotten an inspired, inerrant letter other than the, you know, by by association from the canon? No, I hope you haven't. Any cult members here? Good, okay, all right, good. I was going to say, i got to qualify that. I thought I was okay, but I thought I'd just qualify it. Just be careful. Um, these guys, the Philippians, did not lack for good instruction. I mean, the Apostle Paul wrote them a personal letter. So why send men? Why send guys? Why don't you just say, well, you've got good teaching. You'll be fine. Because that's not healthy Christianity. Healthy Christianity is good teaching coupled with men and women who exemplify the gospel in how they live. Right? That, do you see? That's what's motivating Paul to shift gears. He could have spent the whole rest of the chapter, 19, 20, all the way down to verse 30, all those verses, and he's just talking about people and relationships. Why didn't he give us more good theology? Because it's not all about good theology. It's about living your theology. It's about saying, there is a man who is doing what I just read. There is a woman who is living what I just read. And you know what? We need relationships like that. We need men and women in our lives where we can say, they are living out the gospel. And and in a a non-idolatrous way, we say, I want to be like that. Do you guys have mentors? Do you have disciplers? Do you have men and women that are a a few laps ahead in the race of Christianity, ahead of you? Do do you have historic heroes? Maybe they're not alive today, but, but they continue to live through their writings. That you read them and you say, yes, that's what Christianity looks like in a real living life. That's what it means to do that with my kids. That's what it means to do that with my wife or my husband. That's what it means. That, that's how this verse works out in the church or in a workplace relationship or in caring for parents. Do you have relationships like that? 
I think what Paul is saying through his example is good teaching is not all there is. Now, footnote, we love good teaching. We need good teaching. This is Grace Bible Church, right? We hope that you guys feel like you're well taught from cubbies all the way through the sermon. Because that is a mark of healthy Christianity. That is a mark of what a church is supposed to do. But that's not all there is. We need help and how that gets fleshed out and how that plays out in life. How does that look in a specific situation? Are you with me? Is this true? Do you see how Paul is showing us the importance of that by sending these two men? And he's not just picking, you know, two guys that happen to have a pulse. He's like, I'm picking two guys that I know are living, breathing examples of the teachings that I just mentioned to you. What are those teachings? To, to not look out for your own personal interest only, but also for the interests of others. To do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than yourself. These were humble men. These were selfless men. He talks about do, do nothing, uh, with, do all things without grumbling or complaining in verse 14, that you might be an example. These men were an example in how they lived. He talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, being active and growing in sanctification. Well, these two men that are doing it. We need examples, guys. We we need people that, that are a few steps ahead of us in our walks with Christ. We need people in another seat. That's why um, you don't need to turn there, but do you remember Titus chapter 2? Do, do you know what... Um, happens in a lot of churches, and, and praise God, I don't think it happens here, but you know what happens in a lot of churches? The guys in, in uh, the, this season of life, right, whatever it is, young marrieds, families, um, retired, kids are out of the home, the church tends to form little cliques. You notice this? Not unique to the church. Cliques are very cultural, right? It happens in, in any uh, venue. But if we're not careful, the church can form these little cliques. And the end result is you don't have the type of relationships that Titus 2 describes. And Titus 2 says older men are to train who? Younger men. Older women are to train who? So, so you ready? The old guys and the young guys are supposed to hang out. And the old guys are saying, well, I don't want to go there. They listen to loud music and this and that. And I'm done changing diapers. Right. Okay, and that's where they're at. And the young guys, oh, they don't have anything to teach me. They're disconnected. They're an old generation. And, and that is so contrary to the biblical model. Because if you're a young person in Christ, you need somebody older and wiser who has walked the path, who has grown and matured through experience and, and working out the things of God in real life. We need that if you're a young person. And if you're an older person, a seasoned saint in Christ, this is not the time to put it on spiritual cruise control. This is the time to look at those young, messy people in the church and say, I want to invest in them. Right? Because we don't just need good teaching. We need examples. We need to see how it gets fleshed out. Okay? I think that's one thing we learn from this text. Number two, life-on-life relationships are essential for sanctification and growth. Life-on-life relationships are essential to sanctification and growth. Um, I uh, my, my final school paper, project, dissertation, whatever you call it, and, and some of you may know this, some of you may not, the, the subject of, of the paper of the project was how should the church be equipping people for ministry? 
And specifically, I had in mind biblical counselors, but it really was just about equipping people for ministry. How is the church supposed to equip people to do the work of the ministry? And one of the chapters in that in that paper, all I did was to track the Apostle Paul's life from start to finish, asking this question, how did Paul equip others? It's a wonderful study, one of the most fun parts of the whole thing. And the one the one practice that Paul employed that I think was the most profound in terms of things that do not happen in our culture, you know what it was? Life-on-life ministry. Life-on-life. See, see, in today's Christian world, the guys like Paul don't do life-on-life ministry. They write books. They go on conference tours. They, they have special speaking engagements. But, but there's two or three or four layers between, you know, the, 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 the wonderful speaker in Christ and Joe Blow Christian. Do, do you see that? Do you see that happening? We, sometimes we call that the, the professionalization of Christianity. And, and I'm not saying it, it's not bad to write a book or it, it, it's, I'm not saying it's bad to write a book or to, you know, go to another church and speak or something like that. What, what I'm saying is the Apostle Paul, you know, the, the super Christian par excellence, this is, this is the Apostle's Apostle. This is the guy that wrote most of the New Testament. And yet, you know what he was engaged in regularly? Life on life ministry. He took, he took, I, I, there are very few occasions where you will see Paul in the Bible, you ready? Alone. <laughs> He's always got someone with him. It's Barnabas. It's Luke. It's Timothy. It's Epaphroditus. He's always, he, he, I'm, we're going to go over here. And he's always grabbing somebody by the shirt tails and dragging them with him out the door as he goes wherever he's going. And I think, brothers and sisters, I think that that is instructive for us today. We know it by prescription because Titus 2 says that life on life, older men training younger men, older women training younger women, it's prescriptive there. The Bible tells us that's how you need to do it. But we also see it in the examples of Scripture. We need to be discipling somebody. And we need to be being discipled by somebody. Men, there needs to be an older godly man in your life who is walking with you. And there needs to be somebody that you're being that disciple or two who's younger than you that you're walking with. Ladies, there needs to be an older godly saint who is walking with you in this thing called Christianity. And there needs to be younger women that you're investing in, that you're pouring into. It's life-on-life ministry. Just a footnote on that. We, we, we think about this when, when we talk about you know the, the ministries and programs we do at the church. Um, I know that you can go to a lot of their churches in Granbury and you will find a much longer list of programs. Right? There's ministry Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, three times Saturday, four times Sunday. I, I know that. Do you know why we don't do that here? Because we believe this verse. We do not want to so busy the church with programs that life-on-life relationships and the ministry that comes from that can't happen because you're too tired. You can't fit it into your schedule because you're running from you know this ministry to that ministry. That's the last thing we want to do is do that. We want to have critical, essential ministries that provide a structure, 
But we want to give you guys, as leaders in the church, we want to give you lots of freedom to do what Titus 2 says to do. Because Titus 2 doesn't happen in a program. It happens at Starbucks. It happens on the phone. It happens over uh, lunch at Grumps. It happens in your living room, on your couch. That's where it happens. And life-on-life ministry is essential for sanctification and growth. Paul just told him, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. They got the theology now. Why doesn't he just say, go do it? The answer is that we all need help. We need, we need men, we need women who will say, this is how you do it. Here's how you apply it. Here's how it worked out in my life. But you know what a mark of a healthy church is? When the older guys want to be with the younger guys, and when the younger guys want to be with the older guys. And not just because they share common hobbies, but because they share a common Savior. So the first thing I think we learn by illustration here is that we need relationships with people who exemplify Christ. The second thing I think we learn is that life-on-life relationships are essential for sanctification and growth. Um, If you're not growing the way you believe God would want you to grow spiritually, I would suspect that you probably don't have somebody in your life that's helping you. And if you do, are you following their counsel? So let's let's pursue that. Let's let's do that. I see some of the high schoolers back there. I'm always on them. Pick a guy that you respect and hang with him. Well, they'll never want to hang with him. No, yes, they do. And I talk to the old guys. I say, go hang with the young guys. Right? Because we need that. We need those types of relationships. I, I Just a personal testament. I, I praise God that at every, almost every stage in my walk with God, from my conversion in college to this day, God has put older godly men in my life to show me what it means to be like Christ. And, and I, I can't tell you where I would be without those men. Pursue those relationships. Pray for those relationships. And the last thing I think we learn is this. Genuine kindred spirits who are more concerned about honoring Christ than their own interests are difficult to find and are priceless blessings. Look back. I don't know. Did you catch this one verse? I wish we had more time to unpack this. Look back. Look back at verse 21. Actually, start, start in verse uh, 19 again. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I hear, learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And we understand that, right? I mean, soulmates, if you want to call it that, are not, you know, a dime a dozen, right? To find somebody who, who is one-souled with you, who is a kindred spirit, who is like-minded, um, is, is rare indeed. But, but listen to what he Look at the next verse. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Who is he talking about there? What do you think? Did you catch that as we were reading? He just, well, they all seek their own interests, not Christ. And we go, what? Who is he talking about here? Okay, it could be the Christians in the Roman church. What do you think? 
this is the part where you guys talk. Are, are you are you stumped? What's that? The general Christian population outside of the Philippians? Yeah, it could be the Roman church, could be the general Christian. Uh, here, here's Paul. Okay, picture him. He, he's he's in under house arrest, so he can't leave. He's got the Roman centurion outside in front of him, and he's penning this letter. And he's thinking about the Philippians, and he so wants to send somebody to minister to them who's going to do a good job, who's going to do it like he would do it kind of thing, right? Not, not as a carbon copy, but as, as the things that matter the most, ministering in the same way, right? And he's there, and you can see him kind of looking around, maybe at the Roman church, maybe just at the Christian at large, and he's going, they're all selfish! Right? Do you see that? I, I think that's kind of what he's saying. He's like, ah... You know, praise God, we have an Epaphroditus and a Timothy. But but here's here's where this I think has a a barb in it. <laughs> this verse has a barb in it. Everything that we've talked about in Philippians two, being unified, growing in maturity, looking out for the interests of others, following Christ in humility. Um, not grumbling, not complaining, working out our salvation with fear and trembling. All these things, all these things that we say, yes, yes, we need this, we need that. And we say, where are people that will lead us in those things? Where is, some of you may be saying, Keith, I'd love a discipler. I just don't know anybody. I'd love to have a mentor. God's never blessed me with one. You know why that is? Because too many people in the church are serving their own interests. We will take our own convenience over ministry. We will pursue our own hobbies instead of serving. We will get to the place where things that will perish the moment we die take a precedent over eternal treasure. And we end up being selfish Christians. Selfish, selfish, selfish. That's right. And and you know what's challenging to us about Paul's life, about Epaphroditus' life, about Timothy's life, is they died to themselves in order to serve Christ. They died to their own personal interests in order to serve Him. We talked about it last time. They poured out their life in ministry to others, didn't they? Are you, are you now that type of Christian? If Paul were looking out of the prison and he saw you, would he say, they're just pursuing their own interests? Or would he look at you like he looked at Epaphroditus and Timothy and say, there's a man who is like-souled. There's a man who pursues Christ over his own interests. Or a woman that pursues Christ over her own interests. Do you want to be that type of Christian? Let's take these men and let's use them as our own examples and say, we want to be like that. We want to be the type of Christian that pursues Christ and ministry and the gospel over our own personal interests. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these 
verses that I think illustrate um, some really important things to us about what it means to be in relationships with people that are helping us to grow in Christ and at the same time serving as disciples and mentors for those that are younger than us. Father, we thank you too for these verses that remind us that we need life-on-life relationships. That maybe part of the reason we're not growing and changing is that we don't have the types of relationships that you design to promote that growth. And finally, Father, how rare it is uh, to find a kindred spirit. What a blessing it is when we find one. Father, I pray, whether we have those people in our life or not, I pray that we would be one of those types of Christians. We would be one who follows Christ rather than their own personal interest. We would be one who would mentor and disciple and train uh, rather than accepting convenience and hobbies and other things. And Father, we pray that you would do a work in this church of life-on-life relationships that would exemplify and hold up what it means to be like Christ. Father, thank you that at many levels that's already occurring here. Would you strengthen us to excel still more? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.